we are not at the point where anybody, any organization, any person should be saying, okay, we're done. We're just going to go back to the way we were in the summer of 2019. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, once again, thanks for joining the podcast and uh, helping us understand the data, the information, and uh, what we should be doing. Um, what's coming up, uh, you know, for our conversations before this podcast is uh, even though numbers look good, hospitalization rates look good, uh, employers are still struggling uh, to bring their workers back, and uh, everybody has noticed that people are still getting sick, and maybe you can provide some perspective on that. Well, David, that's exactly what, what I'm seeing with the organizations I'm working with also, is that the the official numbers are down to slightly up. New York City actually has seen almost a doubling in cases, but that's a doubling from a very low level to a still low level, but but higher. But even at those low levels, people say they're seeing more cases anecdotally in their their workplaces and their communities than they saw when the cases the case levels were measured to be real high, you know, even just a month and a half ago. And what's really happening, I, I believe, and I think the data supports this also, is that people aren't getting that sick with these with the new variants, with BA2 specifically. Now that's because of changes in the virus itself that it doesn't affect people in the same way. But it's also because we do have this if you want to call it degree of herd immunity, we do have so many people in the community who are relatively immune, either by vaccination or by having had one or more exposures to COVID in the past. And so then what's happening is these people aren't sick. So if they even bother to test, they're not reporting it because they're not needing to go into any kind of center where it would get reported automatically. So the numbers are not down quite as far as they would appear to be, but that's because it isn't having anywhere near the effect that it used to have. The BA2 uh, is uh, 30% more infectious than the BA1. And I actually heard about a super spreader event at a wedding just this last Saturday. And by Monday, a high percentage of those that attended uh, did become infected. But it's relatively mild, uh, and virtually everyone uh, that was at the wedding had been vaccinated and or had had uh, a Delta or Omicron. It appears that Delta, if you had infection with Delta, that doesn't seem to be quite as protective as if you had Omicron. Uh, but the degree of severity is uh, definitely lower. I think predominantly because uh, so many people have some immunity, may not complete, but they have some. And in fact, Fred, you were reciting an amazing statistic for your hospital over the last uh, couple of weeks. Yes, uh, as of yesterday, we had a single case of COVID in our hospital uh, on the hospital service uh, where we had had 80 to 90 uh, during the peak of Omicron. So this is uh, dramatic. I'm waiting for zero. It should be in the next day or two. But clearly, the hospitalizations have dramatically re- uh, decreased. And, and deaths also. 
Yes, the death rate is 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 also steadily uh, decreasing. I think it's decreased thirty five percent in the last week. But this is what I think is the for the first time. I I, I don't want to be too too cynical about it, but but for maybe the first time in this whole epidemic, CDC really got something right. This new system that they have where they have a, a relatively high cutoff level on cases, but what they really focus on is the demonstrated hospitalization rate, which is the stand-in for impact on people, and then the the uh, percentage of beds occupied by COVID, which is the stand-in for impact on the healthcare system. So what by using this to develop their, their green, yellow, red system, they are really trying to change the way that people look at COVID from just counting every case and worrying that every case could be a death, which is not the case, to only really worrying about the severity and the and the impact and that's what we need to be thinking about um one statistic i think is kind of interesting is that there are a billion with a b a billion cases of upper respiratory viral infections in the u.s every year 500 million of those are human rhinovirus and the human rhinovirus while it doesn't in and of itself hospitalize or kill people the, the nature of the virus is that it sets up other tissues in the human body for bacterial infections. You know, so many people, they get sinusitis or they get ear infections or they get pneumonia after having the human rhinovirus. And that does hospitalize and kill people. But you don't work your whole life around how you're going to react to people having colds. And I think that that's the direction that we're going to start moving to with COVID. The one difference here. Uh, rhinovirus is, is quite in, uh, contagious, but nothing like COVID-19. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2, particularly this BA2, is one of the most infectious agents we've ever had. So it's, it's likely to spread uh, fairly quickly. And the one danger is we worry about those that are immunocompromised and those that are elderly, but that will show up in hospitalizations and the hospitalizations delay about a week, but, but that is sufficiently rapid uh, indicator to be used as the primary decision as to whether we change our infectious disease spread uh, prevention practices. So I, I do approve of the CDC approach as well. It's one of the reasons that we're, we're becoming aware of everyone being sick. It's because everybody is testing these days. And obviously the government is providing uh, a fair amount of free testing services to people. And is this a practice that makes sense? Um, should we keep testing? Is this causing undue alarm? Is this something that should be integrated into a corporate safe health safety program? What's your view on, on um, not only whether we should test, but how often, you know, what are the guidelines here? My thought on this is that as the incidence rate is dropping, and as we just talked about, I can't, it's hard to put a number on it because it's not true anymore anyway. But maybe if you want to put a number on it, say when you're down in the single digits, if you have a screening program where you were just randomly testing people, you're starting to get to the point where your chance of a false positive is probably going to exceed your chance of a true positive if you are, in fact, just doing random screening. However, 
if you what you're testing is people who come in with typical symptoms and you're testing them in order to minimize the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace, that's a different story. And that to me is is a reasonable thing to continue to do. But I would not, I at this point don't think that random testing makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with Bill. I, there are likely to be some asymptomatic individuals, uh, but in general, you you really don't want people who are symptomatic in the workplace. And so that a home test before coming in, if you have symptoms, and monitoring your temp body temperature is certainly one of the earlier, uh, fever is one of the earlier manifestations of the disease, as well as the you know, rhinitis and and feeling most people feel a, a sig very significant fatigue and they know something's up uh, and talking to friends that have picked up the BA2 they felt pretty horrible uh, pretty quickly so those are the people that we do want to test and uh, it could one problem is if someone comes in just pre-symptomatic and are developing symptoms while at work there could be a super spreader event at work and then you would have a large number of people out at one time. And that, that's one of the big concerns. Uh, we would hope to prevent super spreader events within the workplace. And I think it's important uh, if, you, if the workplace has not done so already, really work on improving the ventilation, the air exchange in your, in your uh, offices so that uh, the aerosol can't build up and the spread will be reduced. I think that's a real important point that with all of these things, we're not at the point where anybody, any organization, any person should be saying, okay, we're done. We're just going to go back to the way we were in the you know, summer of 2019. That's, that's not it. We still have this layered approach, the Swiss cheese approach. And while we may be pulling off individual layers of mitigation, taking off some of these Swiss cheeses, Swiss cheese pieces, we're not going to take them all off. In fact, I would hope that some of these remain forever, you know, at least or at least during cold and flu season. You know, things like good ventilation systems, possibly even in in more dense or not well ventilated areas, having the the air filtration devices, emphasizing the importance of not coming coming to work with upper respiratory symptoms. That's not just COVID, but we don't want people coming into work with, with rhinoviruses. We don't want people coming into work with flu. And this coming flu season, there's a lot of people who out there who are saying that this has the potential of being a high flu, uh, a dangerous flu season. And one of the hints towards that is the fact that we are just now finishing a uh, significant and off-season hospitalization peak for flu. Um, so I think that we need to be thinking about maintaining these layers, maintaining the attitude that respiratory infections can be reduced if organizations and individuals take the right actions. So what I'm hearing from both of you is a theme that um, you've been a proponent of, which is common sense and recognizing that everybody is attuned to respiratory infections now as a result of uh, COVID and its variants, uh, you seem to be suggesting the following, which is that when people have symptoms, they should be testing 
not going into the workplace, carrying things. And Fred, you raised the issue today. Uh, workplaces have to be more thoughtful about respiratory illnesses and how to prevent it, and that means better air filtration systems, and obviously, you know, making a variety of, uh, we'll call it hygiene products available to people. Common sense, such as washing one's hands and with a, a certain degree of frequency, and obviously if people uh, are not, are feeling a little bit under the weather, uh, the availability of, of masks to potentially protect themselves and others. And so I'm suggesting maybe coming out of this period, a, a rethink about health and safety in the workplace and some very common sense and relatively easy uh, steps that can be taken to minimize the risks of infection. Is that a, a reasonable summary of sort of your current thinking? Yes, uh, David, that was a really good summary. I, I agree with everything you said. Yeah, me, me too. And David, the one other thing I'd like to add is that um, as I've been working with organizations, I've say, I've come up with kind of four uh, a four part paradigm is that when you're thinking about what you need to be doing, and one is the, the top layer is you've got to comply with regulations. You know, there we had lots of them during COVID, but there are also there are going to be some you know long stand long term regulations on on workplace air quality and things like that. So that's the first layer. The second layer is is thinking of things through the lens of what do you need to do to maintain productivity and operational effectiveness of the organization. The third is what do you need to do to make your employees, uh, your colleagues, uh, feel that you're caring about them, and hopefully because you actually do care about them, but at least they need to perceive that you care about them, um, because that's going to affect productivity also. But that's another. That's the third lens, and then the fourth lens is what do you need to do to be be good corporate citizens? You're you're, you're in the community. You, you don't want to be doing things that is going to be increasing infection rates or what have you outside of the workplace. So what do you need to do to be corporate? good corporate citizens. And I think those those four lenses are an important way to think through what you need to do when you're putting in various types of mitigation. I think that's great and something that you guys have pointed out. There, there are different uh, legs to the stool here. Obviously, people understand uh, the issues being, what we'll call it biological, but it's also psychological. And could I add a fifth layer to your paradigm, Bill? Don't make it political. Let me um, shift because uh, since we last convened, there have been developments about uh, the issue of getting another booster. And would love to get um, your thoughts. And again, I know it's not one size fits all. Uh, there is also, you know, there's debate back and forth as there was about the, you know, originally getting, taking the vaccine. Uh, but maybe you can unwrap this, but how should people as individuals, as family members, as employers, as fellow employees uh, be thinking about uh, the question of getting an additional booster? Well, I think one of the things that's very interesting with this is if you look at the terminology that CDC and FDA have used, um, primarily CDC, you know, normally what happens is the FDA authorizes and then CDC through the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and then the signature of the director, they make recommendations. 
in this and that's exactly what they did with the first two the first two shots or the one shot for J&J but the first series and then the second booster they made a very positive recommendation here's who should get the get the vaccine and they laid laid that all out well now this latest one they actually very very specifically said we are not making a recommendation we are making it available so they they did not make a recommendation and as i and and over the the subsequent two weeks since they made that availability non-recommendation um you've seen a lot of people that are talking about for the the average healthy young-ish i mean I'm, i still consider myself young-ish um person that may be a booster right now as we're coming into the spring as we're you know there are going to be other pressures that are pushing down the rates um maybe and is it not serious maybe we don't don't need a booster right now that doesn't mean we won't need one later and i'm still keeping a very open mind about a booster in the fall um, in order not to have another outbreak come come fall but it's still there's that's too that's too far in the future but clearly at the same time there are people who do need to get a booster people who are old older um, people who have multiple risk factors, uh, they need to be thinking about getting a booster because even though they may be protected, uh, unless they're immunodeficient, they may be protected against uh, some degree of serious disease and, and death. The fact is, if they, are, if they are at risk, getting even a bad cold can set the stage for development of more serious diseases. So in that sense, I do encourage people who are, have risk factors are at, the, are at the, uh, the extremes of age. It's not a bad idea to get a booster. One of the issues is the timing. If right now, when there's such a low level, do you want to remember the probably the booster is going to help you for about six months? So do you want to do it now or you don't want to, in Florida, we want to, may want to wait a little bit longer because uh, their experiences, July, August seems to be a big peak in Florida because everybody goes inside. That's our winter because it's so hot out. So maybe you want to wait um, to decide when you want your maximum protection. Now, another issue that's been raised is called OAS, um, original, um, see it's called original antigenic sin and i hadn't heard about this but i read about it very recently and there's the concept that if you uh, immunize too much with the same antigen theoretically you might impair the host's ability to uh, respond to new viral strains and this is this issue has been raised by pediatricians predominantly and to date there's no evidence that if you get more boosters, your your immune system will become less flexible and less able to change, uh, to adapt to new variants. So I think that that is not a concern, but there is a concern that your immunity will wane over time. And at the time you need your peak antibody levels and cell media immunity, you may not have it because you got the booster too early. So that's part of the timing and I don't have an answer right now. I'm, I'm holding off because I'm a little bit older. I'm holding off on another booster because right now in Florida, the level is so low. And I'm being very careful still in public places. I'm still wearing a mask.
because I know I'm not as well protected as some others. So that's been my solution. And I think each person has to take, you know, the risk benefit of the booster now versus later. Well, apropos that, um, because we've had more time together, data on efficacy and safety. Uh, in terms of weighing the risks and the benefits, is there any new perspective that you have on this? Uh, what can you tell uh, the members of our audience? The, the only, this is actually, uh, Fred, I'll be very interested to hear your thoughts on this. An article I read from, a not, and not from a, in a popular a pop magazine, but it was actually a scientific article, was saying that given that we will likely have a, a more tailored, more Omicron-specific, more current vaccine in the fall. Um, and the FDA is, they're, they're discussing that with the uh, manufacturers right now. But given that, there is some concern that if you were too recently boosted with the current vaccine, that if you get the this enhanced vaccine, this more tailored vaccine, that your immune system will attack the, the antigen so fast that you won't really develop adequate um, immunity to this new um, this new antigen that you're given and it won't have any great great benefit to you for protecting you from Omicron. So that's another reason why I'm thinking that I'm probably, since we don't have uh, the we don't have our winter and the summer as you do in Florida, I'm probably going to wait until the fall and get boosted in the fall. Yeah, Bill, that's a really important point about the Omicron specific boosters. Are they going to be a benefit? And the early evidence is they aren't any much better than the original uh, vaccine. And I think the reason that, that may be the reason that you're attacking that antigen and uh, it's being uh, eliminated from your system so quickly that the, you don't generate as good an antibody response to that particular specific antigen. Um, so I, I don't know. I think the evidence is coming in, but it may be that that having the, the more tailored vaccine will not be that much better than the original vaccine. Uh, but I think we've got to wait for the studies to decide that. Okay, and a final question from um, people who are returning to work. They're concerned about their kids. Kids are in school, spring break. Uh, Fred, you know, uh, the term super spreader event, I'm, I'm thinking anytime people get together in groups of more than 10, a potential super spreader event. I don't know if that's your definition. Uh, so any common sense guidelines? Well, I think vaccination is, is very important for children because they are gathering in large groups and they are at risk for uh, more super spreader events and can then transmit the virus to those that are elderly in the family. Um, so. I, I would encourage vaccination. We vaccinate for other diseases. And I keep hearing now, are we in the endemic phase or the pandemic phase? I think, you know, endemic means it's here for permanently. And this virus is going to be here forever. So I think it's time to acknowledge that this isn't going away. And the best tool for any endemic disease is vaccination. So I really think we should encourage parents to get their children vaccinated. 
Bill, your thoughts. And, and I agree completely. And then the other part of it for businesses is what we had talked about just a few minutes ago. You don't just say, let's go back to um, summer of nineteen of 2019. Let's we're going to leave in place some of these layers of the Swiss cheese um, and individuals need to do that also. You don't, you don't necessarily don't throw yourself into the crowded bar where everyone's you know, shoulder to shoulder and yelling at each other in the bar. Um, that's going to be a high risk environment. Um, but if your kids going to school, the classrooms are not dangerous. It's, it's more of the social activities where they're going to have higher risk of transmission. But when we say dangerous, it's uh, there's a danger of getting COVID. They're not at high danger of getting sick. So um, we just have to keep in mind that this is a different virus, a different environment than it was even just a year ago. All right. Once again, guys, um, thank you not only for the wisdom, but, you know, the plain speak around this. Uh, oh, very much so. Okay. Absolutely. All David. Right. Uh, uh, mental flexibility and willingness to take in new data and change behavior is critical for all infectious diseases. On that note, look forward to our next uh, session in about two weeks. Take care. Right. Thank you, David. Take care, David. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.